and I stayed in a Holiday Inn Express last night, but it looks a lot like that. <laughs> I mean, it looks like, I think this is like a Hilton or something, but who cares? I only care about, I only care about my standard hotels that I go to. So it's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're running late for various number of reasons. Uh, and I know that our guest has a, an important time structure. So we're going to try to respect that. We say we always want to, and we, this week, Brent, we've been bad. Like we've been really, really bad. Well, yeah, it's it's we we've been out of our out of our patch. We've been using other people's gear, other people's internet, and uh, it just hasn't uh, hasn't worked out. Yeah, well, this whole let's now, take this 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 whole <laughs> let's take this show on the road. Let's not. Let's not yeah, do that I at know. all. This is bad. So let's get this done. I want you to. I need you to bring this thing in because I just don't. I'm not. I'm not feeling it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna drink okay. some coffee and feel it in a second. All right, hurry up and feel it, man, because we need you for this one. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Hot Isle. My name is Brent Piotti. With me always, I have the energetic and looking tired, Mr. Go ahead. Brian Carpenter. There he is. Good morning, sir. I am back home today. I am well rested, and I'm feeling great. I get to spend uh, the evening with my folks, my wife, and my kiddo, and so I'm feeling good. So today we're going to dive into this. So we want to talk open source. We talk open source all the time, but specifically we want to talk with someone that uh, that really knows, I guess, the landscape. And we want to talk specifically about containers, cloud, and automation world and dive into this really cool announcement of um, a, a recently announced partnership between Google Cloud Platform and Pivotal. Um this was called Kubo, and we'll dive into where that came from and what it's all about. But we have with us today none other than Justin Aaron Krantz. Justin, how are you doing this morning? Hey, doing very well. Nice to be here, uh, Brian and Brent. Absolutely. So we have Mr. James Waters from Pivotal to thank for throwing you under the bus to be on our our hokey podcast that uh, – Hopefully, we'll get uh, you get some benefit out of this, and and we'll actually get to better understand the open source world and what this whole Kubo thing is all about. So, Justin, tell us who you are and what you do, and and how you got there. Hey, so um, Justin Aaron Krantz. I am currently work at uh, Bloomberg. Uh, I head up our uh, compute architecture team in our CTO office, and responsible for where we're going with our strategy around kind of everything from our data centers to our uh, kind of frameworks, and so things like containers and you know cloud strategies are all things that you know I'm very interested in on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, absolutely. And, and where you came from, you know, there's a we were geeking out about this before we even started. Um, you know, the one of the reasons that we've uh, reached out to you is simply, you know, frankly, because of your background. Um, so I'd like to hear a little bit of your background, where you where you kind of what you've been doing before you got to where you are today, and definitely want to hear about your relationship with the Apache Software Foundation. Yeah, so I, I have a long history in kind of the open source uh, community. Um, I actually got roped into uh, kind of open source when I was in uh, college, and I was working with a gentleman by the name of Roy Fielding, and he introduced me to this thing called Apache and the Apache HTTP uh, server. And so then I got basically started contributing patches. You know, this was right around kind of when the Apache HTTP server 2.0 was kind of getting started and basically contributing patches. 
like, hey, it doesn't work on, you know, and, and helping a lot with the stability, you know, of the infrastructure and the portability uh, of it and doing some testing. And eventually, you know, was elected, you know, um, you know, as a member of the Apache Software Foundation. Uh, and then, you know, I was also, you know, very privileged to serve on the board of directors uh, for the Apache Software Foundation and was even president uh, for a number of years. So, you know, I have a very long kind of background in kind of open source and kind of the landscapes and, you know, you see all these new things with, you know, OpenStack and Cloud Foundries and Kubernetes and, you know, kind of you have to be conversant in the open source landscape uh, in this technology world today. So let's quantify this, though. You're, we're talking 16 plus years in as a member and all the other things, including president of the Apache Software Foundation. That's quite a long time to be participating in, in such a group. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's been a, it's been a tr tremendous ride, you know, and kind of, you know, get to meet some, you know, very cool people, you know, and get to work on very cool projects and cutting edge. And so, you know, I've worked, you know, on so the Apache HTTP server, you know, Subversion, we were joking before about, you know, kind of everybody uses Git now. But, you know, when we started Subversion, you know, 17, 18 years ago, you know, there wasn't Git and, you know, kind of, you know, and, and you know, I think we did a good job with Subversion and people still use it today. And, you know, um, there's Git. Um, you know, and that's great. But, you know, just see the kind of the life cycle of projects uh, is always just fascinating to see. And so you, you mentioned HTTP, you mentioned Subversion. Are there some other cool projects that we didn't kind of pre-prep on? Like other, or is there one that like, man, it's like, it's got like seven users, but it's your favorite. It's your baby. Tell us a little <laughs> bit more about some of those other projects. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that we were writing kind of the HTTP server, you know, we needed a client library. Um, and so kind of myself and another uh, core contributor, uh, Greg Stein, you know, we wrote kind of a, a library called Apache, uh, surf and it kind of bounced around for a while, but it ended up back in, um, uh, Apache um, these days, and it's basically a high-performance client library. You know, it's got a good ecosystem, but nobody's really, really heard of it. And kind of unfortunately, the HashiCorp crew has their own project called Surf now, and so you know, it's kind of you know been funny and kind of you know you just can't you know have, finding names is hard, and you know you're always conflicting with some other kind of project. So you know, I contributed to a project called Surf, but that was you know easily 15 years before Mitchell and kind of the HashiCorp crew you know came out with their surf library and that's fine you know but you know so as i have to give that caveat if it's not the HashiCorp, you know surf yeah so you were surf before surf was cool yes yeah and we've had mitchell on he's great and i'm sure i'm pretty sure that he was if he did take your name he was paying homage to the amazing work that you did with apache surf right it's got to be i'm sure yes <laughs> So, so some of the other things you've done, I mean, that, that's amazing. Honestly, I'm, I'm pretty sure we could have an entire podcast around what you've done with open source and your contributions. And we're going to leave it with Justin is a giver, right? He really, really, he likes to share, especially when it comes to code. Um, some of the other things you've done, like being uh, prior to this job, you know, as, as far as uh, being a CTO. And then also, you know, again, you have a, dude, you've got a PhD, which means you're wicked smart, right? So I want to talk a little bit about getting a PhD in computer science. So let's uh, let's hit that real quick first. So PhD in computer science. Uh, tell us a little bit about that process, man. 
Yeah, no, it just goes back to kind of, you know, with the open source and other, so the gentleman Roy Fielding, you know, and he kind of introduced me, you know, to his PhD thesis advisor. And he, at the time, he was finishing his own dissertation. And, you know, you may have heard this thing called REST, and representation t- state transfer. You know, he was finishing his dissertation, you know, at that time. Then I got to, you know, introduced to, you know, his thesis advisor, Dick Taylor, and at UC Irvine, University of California, Irvine. And, you know, I was like, hey, this grad school thing, you know, isn't so bad, you know, and so I, I kind of wandered for, you know, it took me, what, you know, seven years as a uh, PhD uh, student, um, and really what my dissertation uh, was focused on was, you know, rest is a very good thing, and you can summarize it in very wrongly in some cases, but just at a, at a high level, you know, it is the exchange of documents, it's a change of hypermedia and, and text and images, um, but kind of what my dissertation was about was, um, it's actually more than that, you see like JavaScript, and it was really explaining, okay, what does, you know, I have all these JavaScript and, and kind of coming in the browser, what does that change? And so that was really what my PhD dissertation was about, and it's just been fascinating, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, the most of that work over a decade ago and seeing everybody talking about JavaScript and all these, you know, isomorphic frameworks and everything like that. And, you know, what was really cool is like, hey, you know, when I was a grad student sitting, you know, kind of, you know, in academia thinking about, you know, where some of these things may end up. And it was a very cool experience. But now, you know, a decade later, you see some of the things that we kind of postulated, you know, have come to fruition. And that's been very cool to see. Yeah, and that's exactly where I was headed with this. I mean, you you wrote your you know your theories, your you know and all this kind of stuff, and now today I feel like I walk out and it's like, okay, you need this and this, and by the way, you know, do you have a RESTful API? Yes. Yeah. So like, I mean, you really you really kind of predicted basically the standard of living, you know, just just under ten years later. Uh, pretty you know pretty cool stuff, frankly. So um, it, you know, is there is there another thing that you kind of theorized or was going to be the other side, like maybe your your secondary thesis, you know, your, your secondary dissertation that you went, man, I'm not sure I want to use that one. It might be too forward thinking. Like, should I know what's going to be my life in, in another five years? No, I mean, I, I think one of the things that, you know, when I was a grad student was always interested was kind of this confluence of kind of the open source, you know, and, you know, even, you know, 15 years ago, you know, it wasn't necessarily a given that everything was, you were going to go see all these companies, you know, contributing to open source as we did, so as we see now. And so I think that's been, you know, kind of, you know, very cool to see kind of the transformation of kind of these companies to embrace, you know, kind of open source and kind of contributing and doing those things and, you know, all of the, the tools and the processes and, you know, the motivations of that. And I think that's been, you know, absolutely fascinating to, to see as kind of as somebody who was a contributor and now here I am at Bloomberg, you know, and basically helping Bloomberg's, you know, transformation and how we, you know, kind of contribute to the open source world. Yeah, absolutely. So one more question about kind of what got you to where you are today. And we love to find this out. But um, what what got you interested in technology? I mean, you, you've obviously committed the time to get a master's and a PhD in computer science, and then your entire career uh, has been in technology. So, what what got you excited about technology? 
you know, I was very fortunate that my, you know, my parents had a computer at home, and you know, I was always playing with it. I was always, you know, tinkering with it, and you know, even from a, you know, kind of when I was very young, you know, kind of learning how to do basic, and you know, okay, how does this work? And it's kind of this very inquisitive nature of I need to understand, you know, exactly what's going on, and that just kind of persisted. And you know, kind of, I was very fortunate, you know, when I was in, you know, high school, you know, to have, you know, really good, you know, kind of teachers like, hey, let's teach programming and you know before then I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do you know <clears throat> and um, you know I'm kind of like hey this programming thing is very cool I could you know do these commands and something does what I tell it to you know and that's just been you know a terrific you know kind of journey over the last 20 you know years of all right programming that's what I love to do that's you know kind of how do I build these systems that I have in my head how do I realize them and that's just amazing yeah absolutely so cool you brought up uh, Bloomberg in particular and how you're you're trying to leverage open source and things like that. I watched a really cool um, a YouTube video where you were at uh, Spring One conference and you talked a lot about just um, em- embracing the open so- source culture and driving that within, within Bloomberg. Um, tell us a little bit about how you guys leverage open source and uh, what that transformation has been like, because uh, you know we like to use the 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 the, um, the phrase you know open source is free like a puppy, right? So talk to us about what what it's really like in the day of open source and and how you guys are leveraging it. No, I, I think we have to look at it on a, a lot of different dimensions, and I think you know there is all of the stuff that we try to engage with the outside kind of community, and I think you know the realization is we do not always have all the smart people work at Bloomberg, and there's going to be smart people at you know other companies as well, and so how do we kind of collaborate? And so you know we have to take every case by case basis, and we take a look at okay, so you know we have you know our our, our search platform is based on Apache Solar. We have a number of contributors upstream working on, you know, solar and kind of making a search engine and, you know, giving that out, you know, to the world. Uh, You know, they're working, you know, at Bloomberg for our, you know, priorities. You know, there are other things where, um, you know, we will do kind of like we've done with this Kubo is like, hey, we have this idea. Can we go pitch it? And can we get, you know, people like, hey, there's a problem here. And so working kind of with partners in the, you know, the ecosystem where we may not be directly contributing code, but, you know, really the motivation, you know, behind Kubo was, you know, discussions that, you know, we had, you know, for a while with a number of the Pivotal team around, hey, here's just use case, how do we solve it? And it was like, hey, you know, not kind of evolved into Kubo, but there's also kind of inner source of where we take, you know, we're very, you know, we have 4,000, you know, engineers, um, and so we can actually do basically an inner source of just treat it like open source, but we have 4,000, you know, people. And so, you know, we've been adopting a lot of the kind of the standard tooling, um, you know, whether it be, you know, GitHub, you know, whether it be, you know, Jira or kind of Big Grant or kind of the HashiCorp ecosystem of tools or all of those developer tools. And so, um, you know, how do you uh, go build that um, kind of tool tooling? So what, what, what would you say um, drove the, the the need or the necessity for open source uh, at, at Bloomberg, um, but maybe just kind of the as technologies can, or companies continue to evolve, why why does open source become such an integral part to an organization, and why can't we do it with the things that are off the shelf, right? 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, for, for us, you know, as we have, you know, over 4,000 developers and, you know, we are doing, you know, a, a lot of velocity and trying to constantly do releases and we're constantly trying to get new features out to our customers. And, you know, how do you do that as quickly as possible? And it's like, okay, if I take this black box, you know, piece of software, okay, well, there's this bug in this. How do I solve it? Oh, I have to go to a vendor and I have to wait for them to basically make a fix, give that out, test it out, where when it's open source, if it's critical for us, we can go and take that code, modify it, patch it, deploy it, kind of at our schedule, rather than kind of waiting for, oh, you know, we're going to have to ship you something in a year from now that will fix this, you know, issue. And we're, as developers, we understand software doesn't happen overnight. It's a journey. But, you know, it gives us that flexibility to say, okay, you know, look, we as I contribute very much to Apache Solar. You know, we have people, um, you know, that are contributing to it. It also allows us to hire people from the community. They're like, okay, look, you know, we're, you know, kind of in, in these communities, uh, be able to um, kind of recruit and be able to say, hey, we're working on this tool that you already know. So as we look at OpenStack and Cloud Foundry and Kubernetes and like, hey, what if you can use those tools here rather than, you know, basically having bespoke tools. Absolutely. So uh, during your during your discussion on uh, during Spring Run, uh, you talked about uh, the number of deployments that you have a day. So if we look at the CICD uh, pipeline, right, specifically, we're talking about the deployment, right, which is a big difference than just actually developing new iterations of the code. So Talk to us about uh, how many deployments you guys are able to do a day. Um, that was back in 2016 and where you guys are today. And maybe even talk about where you started before you got to that 4,000 and what that, what that um, uh, you know, I guess how long it took to get to doing 4,000. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we had to have a very modular architecture in order to be able to kind of decouple and uh, be able to do, you know, 4,000 releases a day. It obviously can't be just this big monolith. It has to be these individual components and, you know, every team, you know, um, is able to kind of push code, you know, at their um, kind of discretion and they get to say, hey, look, I broke it. Okay, let me quickly, you know, get that fixed and push that out. So, you know, that's one of the things that we really prize is that ability to respond rapidly, you know, to our um, customers and be able to say, hey, you know, this isn't working right quickly. Hey, we can go push this out um, and do that in, in a very fast uh, manner, but be able to do that in a principled um, approach. And so that took a, a lot of investment that over the last, you know, decade and a half almost of, all right, how do we go get our uh, deployments and, and be able to get that stuff that our clients interact with um, and get that out to there to be faster. And kind of the challenge always is, well, how can I go even faster? And so we've done a lot of stuff to improve what our clients, you know, see, you know, and, and they interact with. But there's stuff on the back end where we necessarily have not got that speed of a rapidity of kind of the deployment. How do we do that? And that's obviously where things with microservices and other things are, are coming into play. And, and you mentioned, you know, earlier, especially as we were kind of pre-interviewing you, uh, a culture of do not ask permission, right? Which, you know, I'd first like you to kind of baseline that and explain exactly what that means, um, because that doesn't work at my house. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll follow up. So explain do not ask permission culture. 
Yeah, I, I think it, it's, you know, we, we uh, empower our developers to go make the right decision. Um, and if the team that is responsible for that particular piece of code says we're ready to go push that, you know, code out, then they get to go and, and, and push that. They don't have to wait for, you know, a set schedule. They don't have to wait for, you know, it's kind of, you know, once a week we're rolling everything out. Um, and so certainly in those areas where we are doing that permissionless development, you know, that's where we see the fastest rapidity. If it's like, okay, we can only do things on a fixed cadence, then you have to wait and you're not able to be as responsive um, to kind of your uh, customer's demands. And, you know, so like, and that makes perfect sense. And even the most agile and empathetic security person in the world is probably twitching at the concept of permissionless development. So how do you get buy-off from security and ops and all those people? How How does that happen? Yeah, it's a conversation. I've always said, you know, bought into the DevOps is a conversation between the developers and the operators and include the security. And, you know, so kind of within our CTO office, you know, we have a team of folks that are thinking about security and what are the, the frameworks that we provide to our developers to give them, you know, that ability to go fast and be able to do the right things from a security perspective. Um, and then from an operational perspective, how do you go do things like a Kubernetes or an OpenStack and, you know, give that flexibility to kind of the developers to be okay as self-service. You know, you can do automation with Chef and Salt and, you know, all of these other kind of technologies and be able to say, okay, you know, I'm going to give you an API. I'm going to have an SLA behind it. You can call this API. You can get as many VMs or containers as you like. Go, go, go. And it's up to the operators to maintain that level of SLA and be clear about okay, hey, this is what that means. But, you know, I, I think without having those APIs and that self-service kind of aspect, it's, it's all going to break down. So, you know, the cornerstone of this is all the, the trends around automation and, um, you know, self-service and, you know, getting that permissionless culture kind of, you know, dictates you have to have these things. And so we've, we've, uh, we keep nibbling around on the outside of the body of this thing like little piranhas. You keep saying Kubernetes. You keep saying, you know, we've got these deployments. Uh, and you actually said, you know, we had, you know, specific problems that we had to go solve. So now, you know, let's let's dive right into Kubo, which is not only the name of a great kids movie, um, but is also, the, you know, it's it's like the the benefit. It's like a celebrity mashup in the open source world. Right. It's like the benefit of open source. So we've got Kubernetes and Bosch. So, you know, first of all, what problem was it solving? So I, I think kind of the challenge for us is we are primarily a C++ and a Python shop and JavaScript. And, you know, some of the aspects of Cloud Foundry and kind of the, the Go routers didn't necessarily work kind of well for some of our applications. And so we spent some time with the kind of pivotal team, like brainstorming, okay, how do we get everything to, to work? And we still have some bespoke things that are not HTTP. So, you know, if we were a, you know, .NET or Spring Boot shop, you know, kind of, you know, we necessarily wouldn't have these problems. But because, you know, we're, we're, we're not using HTTP, we're not using, you know, kind of Java, .NET, you know, okay, what is the right things? And, 
um, it, it led us down kind of the path around kind of Kubernetes and be able to say, okay, hey, look, I can go solve my problem, you know, for the app that the application developers see um, with Kubernetes, and I can go deploy my stateless, you know, 12-factor, you know, application within Kubernetes. But that led to an operational problem of how do I manage Kubernetes? And that's one thing I think that the Kubernetes community was fairly silent on was, okay, I have a large fleet of kind of machines. How do I make sure they're still running? How do I upgrade them? And that was really just something that the kind of the Kubernetes community by themselves didn't necessarily have a great answer. But then when, you know, my background in open source is taking a look at the big picture and I'm like, hey, there's this boss thing and the boss is really good about day two operations, day 100 operations, about uh, how do I upgrade machines? How do I make sure that I have a fleet of things running? And so then it basically was, you know, kind of my question was, hey, could we combine Kubernetes and, and Bosch? And it was like, yeah, I, I think we could do that. And I was like, oh, really? Tell me more. And obviously that led to kind of a lot of conversations. And now, you know, great work that, you know, the, kind of the Google and Pivotal, you know, team has, has done around Kubo and kind of this reality of, the, again, it's kind of the, this concept we had of, hey, you know, there's no reason why we couldn't have Kubo. And then, you know, luckily, you know, we had some people who were, you know, kind of like, hey, let's let's work on this and let's contribute to it. And so now, you know, it's open source. And, you know, right now it's still kind of under incubation. But part of the thing is to get, you know, awareness of it and to say, look, hey, here's a potential path that you could use for maintaining Kubernetes clusters. Everybody else have a better idea? Let's hear it out. Let's talk about it and, you know, be able to use kind of the, the boss paradigms to say, yeah, day two operation is important. All right, how do I do that? Um, and that's something I, we think Kubo you know, has, has a pretty strong answer to. And, you know, as, as it's been rolled out, I mean, it's, you know, it's a fairly, it's a relatively new announcement. And like you said, it's, uh, it's young. Um, I'm sure, especially as, as plugged in as you are, you're getting plenty of feedback, uh, especially, you know, so tell me, you know, what's the feedback from the existing Kubernetes, uh, you know, community, existing Cloud Foundry, is it different? Are there people going, you're crazy? Like, where, where, what's all the feedback sound like? Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of this, you know, like, oh, wait a minute, I need to think about this because, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the, the things is people have these organizations and it's like Cloud Foundry and Kubernetes and they're competing against each other. And I look at it as, you know, look, this is, you know, um, you know, this is uh, not a zero sum game is that, hey, look, Kubernetes, you know, could take advantage of some of the aspects that the Cloud Foundry community is doing well. Why wouldn't they do that? Why, you know, it's all open source. It's a community. It's just people talking to each other. Um, and it's not, you don't necessarily have to say, well, oh, it's not invented here. And so I think kind of once people get through that initial reaction of, wait a minute, I thought everybody was competing. And I say, no, you know, there are perfectly valid use cases for Cloud Foundry. There are perfectly valid use cases for Kubernetes. But that doesn't mean there can't be some kind of sharing, you know, between kind of the, the communities. And so I think, you know, when you, you talk with, you know, folks, everybody is generally, you know, fairly, very supportive uh, of it. Um, but, you know, it takes that initial moment of, that's weird. That wasn't what I was thinking. I thought, oh, we were going to have to, you know, solve this day two operations on our own. We we're going to have to go write our own Ansible assault or Chef playbooks to manage, you know, Kubernetes. And it's like, well, what if you didn't have to? What if you could go use Boss? And so that's really what the Kubo kind of experiment is all about: is to say, hey, 
here's a potential path. Doesn't say it's the perfect solution. It doesn't say it's the only solution, but I think what we're trying to say is it's a solution. If anybody else has a better idea, love to hear it. Show some code, show something, and you know, give us that uh, kind of framework for us to be able to have that conversation. And is there, do you think that uh, you know, as you take that kind of like the idea that Bosch could help uh, Kubernetes with day two to day one hundred and beyond? Do you, have you already gone? You know, maybe this would help X Y Z. Maybe it would help. You know, like uh, you know, you, for instance, you know, uh, you guys do a lot with Hadoop. Have you said, wow, if I could manage my Hadoop, and maybe you know, frankly, it's like Hadoop's already being managed by something else, and now you've got a manager, manager, managers. That sounds yes. like that sounds like my job. Um, and so you know, it's like, are you seeing Bosch as like, wow? Maybe this becomes the baseline manager for a couple of different things, uh, or what do you what do you think about Bosch specifically in that regard? I, I think you know one one of the the big things I've talked with a lot of the folks in the Bosch community is there's a you know I think Andrew Clay Schaefer uses the mean time to dopamine around Bosch. It, it takes a fairly long time to get the light bulb, you know, around Bosch. And I remember you know years ago I was chatting with uh, Dr. Nick and he was trying to explain Bosch and I wasn't getting it. And then kind of after a couple of days on the whiteboard, you know, we got a and I was like, ah, oh, I got it. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get Bosch. And, you know, that's the thing that, um, you know, has always been a struggle for the Bosch kind of community. Of This is this very cool thing, but it has opinions and you have to understand what those opinions are. And then once I, my kind of belief is once you understand, oh, yes, that's exactly the right way to do it. So then now I can go take a look at other things. Obviously, Cloud Foundry, you know, utilizes Bosch and now you have this Kubo but you know all these things around kind of uh, data services and things like that so you're seeing you know work from Pivotal around Redis and Rabbit you know but you know there are other things like databases so you know kind of there's a something called Dingo Postgres and that's basically a Postgres on top of Bosch and you know there's MySQL and you know and it's also reasons to think of things like you know kind of newer databases like CockroachDB and it's like hey could I go get that to work with Bosch and you know those are you know the things that you think about it's like okay you know kind of, you know, where Kubernetes and kind of the Cloud Foundry runtime, those are really good for things that are stateless and they're 12 factor. And I, I, don't, I can have a, a thousand of them, I can have a hundred, I can scale them up. But there are still a lot of applications that need state. And usually your 12 factor app has to talk to a database. It has to talk to, you know, so how do you provide that? And so that's really where Boss provides, you know, kind of that good ecosystem and great that portability of I can go run it in OpenStack, I can go run it in, you know, VMware, I can go run it in, you know, Google, Azure, you know, AWS, and, you know, do that. And I don't have to radically change, you know, kind of that platform. So, you know, we really look at Boss as kind of that open source kind of. Um, infrastructure that layer it and said okay manager i don't really care where you run it um just go and run these you know stateful things and then i can go on layer on top of that i can layer cloud foundry runtime i could layer the kubernetes runtime and be able to um you know kind of then deploy my 12 factor apps on top of that yeah absolutely so so to boil this down Kubo is this, this awesome mashup between Pivotal and, and Google, effectively, uh, specifically utilizing Kubernetes plus Bosch, right? So I can automate, deploy, and manage day two through X of my Kubernetes uh, clusters on any cloud that's out there. So, um, you know, I was reading through some documentation for Kubernetes this morning. 
Kate's runs on VMware, AWS, uh, other things as well. So what is what is um, what does Kubo do that maybe like a rancher does not, and then vice versa? What does rancher do that maybe Kubo doesn't? Yeah, so I, I think really, you know, when you think about day two operations and, you know, kind of there's been a lot of work around, you know, what I would call day one, which is, okay, I just want to boot my Kubernetes cluster. I just want to basically get my cluster running. But, you know, there are things you have to worry about and after day one. And the issue is, okay, well, look, you know, the reality of and no matter what infrastructure you're running, whether it be private or in the public cloud, machines die, hardware fails. What are you going to do about that? What is going to keep an eye on that and be able to say, all right, hey, I was supposed to have 10 VMs, something happened and I'm down, down to nine. What do you do with that? And, and what what kind of system exists to be able to respond, you know, to the realities of the data center? And, you know, kind of the public cloud is just someone else's data center, you know, and it's, it's hardware and, you know, hardware is going to fail. And so the reality of it is, okay, how do I try and build resilient software? Um, and that's really kind of where Bosch kind of comes in is to be able to say, okay, this is what my intended state is. Let me make sure I keep that up to date no matter what happens. And kind of, you know, a lot of the other kind of Kubernetes, what we saw was didn't really have that great answer. It was like, okay, let me go start it up. You know, there's all this talk about like self-hosted Kubernetes. And the, the challenge there was, well, again, it was like somebody shoots your machine in the head. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to recover? And even in, say, with Bosch, there is still a director involved that, well, that's the thing keeping an eye on everything, but there's just one thing to look at versus, okay, I have all these other things. And, you know, the boss, you know, kind of director itself, you know, we've talked with, you know, the boss community around, okay, how do you make that available and resilient? And there's there's challenges there, but at least I can have a consistent pattern for my software to say, code against boss, basically expect boss to manage that. And then boss can just keep an eye on everything and keep it running. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because, um, you know, in the discussions around cloud-native applications, uh, we always talk about resilient apps, right? So they have the ability to run on, you know, call unresilient or or unreliable infrastructure. And now what we're I'm kind of hearing is maybe like a more of a bottom-up approach uh, from a Bosch perspective, which is, hey, try to keep my virtual machine alive as well. I'm still going to write applications that are resilient. But I'm kind of doing it from the bottom up and the and the top down. So um, is that a is that a paradigm shift or has that always been going on? And talk to me kind of how that. No, no, I, I think that 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 characterization is, is perfectly accurate, in, in the sense that you know you have to do both. You know, and this is really where my 12 factor apps. You know, I, I I put them in a container and I make it cloud native. I make it resilient. You know, but uh, we go back to the end of the day of well, I do need an ecosystem around my cloud native application. I have to store my data somewhere. I have to store, um, you know, I have to have message queues and message buses and, and things like that. And well, that's not 12 factor. So where does that live? So you need something to be able to manage kind of those kind of collection of services of things that aren't going to be cloud native because those are the things that support the cloud native architecture. Um, and that's really is where, you know, when you think about kind of Bosch's bootstrapping kind of a Kubernetes or a cloud foundry to be able to say, okay, now you can write your um, kind of cloud-native and resilient 12-factor application on top of that, but 
it's got to start somewhere. You have to incept from somewhere. And again, you can't just say magically, oh, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a Kubernetes cluster that's magically resilient. Well, Kubernetes, you know, doesn't, you know, isn't at that layer um, for uh, keeping my VMs afloat. It doesn't know that. It's just, I have a VM. I will kind of, you know, basically keep my containers running. But if I lose capacity or I want to grow capacity, that's outside the bounds of Kubernetes. And that's kind of where we think, you know, kind of Kubo can play a role in addressing that kind of gap. Absolutely. So you you have a team of 4,000 developers that, that work with you. Open source is alive and well and thriving within your organization and, frankly, throughout the industry. <clears throat> this is a, a world of, of kind of unbounded potential, utilizing uh, any and everything and, and wanting to be unrestricted. But if we think about <clears throat> the unrestricted world, right, I mean, there's a, there's a great use case or example of Etsy, a, a very prominent kind of based in the cloud company that uses DevOps principles, but it took them quite some time to really get into this, um, you know, consistent deployment model, right? Where they're deploying, you know, hundreds and thousands times a day and they built their own cloud native platform, right? Now what we're talking is, all right, how do we use Pivotal Cloud Foundry and in, in, in this instance, uh, Kubernetes, which in Pivotal Cloud Foundry is a very opinionated structured type of platform it has it has um, guardrails on it. So how does that opinionated way fit well into this kind of free range open source mindset? Well, I, I think you know my background is always look you you can it's not fixed and you know kind of the great thing with the open source community of you have an idea to improve something you can go to the community and say hey what about this idea what about these sets of patches or this functionality and so you know i look at it as not necessarily a a black box and be able to say well we have an idea for how you know cloud foundry or kubernetes could work um you know come up with ideas and you know even better patches and you know pull requests and I think that's kind of the great thing of kind of, hey, we have Kubo, and hey, here's this idea. Let's see if it works or not. And, and maybe the community is going to say, you know what? No, Kubo's not that interesting. Okay, well, let's hopefully we're going to be replaced by something even better. That's perfectly fine, you know, by me. It's just to have this day two as a strong focus of kind of the open source community where that was certainly a thing when we started deploying OpenStack was there wasn't a whole lot of day two focus that we had to kind of bring in that day two focus, you know, when we brought in OpenStack. And so that's a lot of the things that, you know, we want to see kind of a more, you know, emphasis in the open source community isn't just getting it running because we're the ones operating or, you know, we're the ones that need to do the deployments. It needs to be seven by 24 by forever. And so, you, I mean, you, you keep mentioning this day two, day two, and I love it because you're making my life easy. Um, how are you solving day one? I mean, that's also like consistent, uh, you know, repeatable deployments, uh, you know, all those kind of things, or even the ability to redeploy. Um, is there... Is there a thought first? Is there is there a thought process in Kubo for essentially southbound extensibility into a hardware manager, and how, how what do you think that hardware manager should be today? 
Yeah, so I, I, I think that's kind of the great, you know, extensibility of the uh, kind of the BOSS and the CPI kind of infrastructure there is to be able to plug in with, okay, look, it's got all these public clouds and, you know, there's been some work around kind of, you know, doing BOSS on bare metal and being able to, you know, interact and take that model um, and be able to apply it to physical machines as well, you know. It's just kind of the concept of, okay, I need a machine. I need to be able to, to kind of provision it. As, and, you know, that can be really anything. And I think that's really, you know, once you've got, you know, kind of the broad range of the, you know, the CPIs that are available today in Bosch, it's now fairly easy to go say, okay, I could probably do, you know, this other new thing, this other new paradigm and be able to kind of bring that. So, you know, and the, and the day one, it's, you know, one of the things, you know, kind of as a developer, you know, is, we're, we want to take the time to do the right thing. And so why are we investing in things like Kubo or Cloud Foundry or OpenStack? It's we want to get it right. And because, you know, the thing I've said on Twitter before is like, yeah, there's only one day one, but there's an infinite number of day twos. And, you know, the issue is it may take me time to go build the automation you know, do that. But if I can go deploy that on day one with the model of, okay, I'm going to make my life easier on day two and beyond, great, let me do that. But it means it's going to take time. So again, it's not going to happen overnight. So, you know, we're not interested in having toy deployments of OpenStack or Kubernetes or Cloud Foundry. We want to be able to be able to withstand you know, 4,000 production pushes a day, you know, on that infrastructure. And so that means that's where we have to focus in making sure that whatever we deploy that first day can withstand day two and beyond. And and so that leads us right into, you know, the fact that uh, Kubo is essentially, you know, something like a really good alpha at the moment. Um, so as, as far as I can tell, am I right there? Yeah, yeah, okay. it's, it's an alpha. Yeah. It's an alpha. You know, we've been playing with it. You know, I know. You know, people have been giving demos on it. You know, it works. You know, is it perfect? Are there still things we, that need to be done to improve it? Yes, but this is, you know, where we felt, you know, kind of in the open source tradition, uh, put it out there. Let's see if there's a community around it. Let's see if people are interested. We've obviously Pivotal and Google and, you know, uh, have contributed to it. And, you know, how do we go get others, you know, saying, hey, this is a good idea. But, again, it has that initial reaction of, wait, 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 wait. You know, you know, I thought, you know, these things were like oil and, you know, water. And it's like, no, it's actually, you know, Kubo and Boss. It's actually a pretty good, you know, combination. And so is there um, – what, what would you say are next steps – um, to where you would get to the point where you would want to run it in production, like, uh, and you know that could be, you know, just make a couple of changes. It's, you know, I've got to, you know, do some other things here first. I got to, you know, have it ma- basically run a SendMail server. Like, what is it? You know, what do you, what are you going to make it do before it's a production ready type system? And I, I think it's really thinking about, okay, you know, what are these day two incidents and what are the things about, you know, does it handle the failovers, does it handle upgrades, does it, you know, all of those scenarios. And I think once we see kind of the Kubo stories around that and be able to prove to ourselves, yes, it works as kind of we intend, then great, we can start to kind of use it in, in anger, you know, and obviously, you know, it's still very much in the alpha phase. It works, you know, but, you know, does it have all of the day two, you know, stuff today? No, of course not. But, you know, it's a journey and trying to see, okay, can we go get more people to come along on this journey? Did you have one, Brent? 
Sorry, no, I, I thought I was going to step on you, bro. <laughs> no, it's all right. Yeah, I'm just trying to. You know, this is a this is a new announcement, right? And 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 we've we've done some digging around, and and I and and I know that there's this is going to evolve. So we want to make sure that we're covering all the salient points. And I hope we've done that. But what have we missed so far? What's what are some other the, the neat things that uh, perhaps the listeners should know about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really, you know, kind of the, the mission is, you know, get software developers to understand that day two philosophy, I think, you know, and, and be able to say, okay, look, that stuff is critical, you know, people are having to run this, you know, kind of, you know, in anger, and, and be able to do that. And so what do I have to have? kind of at the infrastructure level to be able to provide that day two. And, you know, right now, you know, kind of the Kubo is, is that experiment, but, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, kind of, all right, how do I, you know, all the integration with, you know, logging systems and alerting systems and, you know, all of these, you know, things that, you know, are going to have to have to grow, you know, and we see in the Kubernetes, you know, community, there's things like Prometheus um, and, okay, well, well, how does that scale? And I was like, can it scale? And I it's like, okay, you know, how, how you think about putting all of these pieces together as a kind of a, collab, a, a cohesive whole rather than, okay, I've just got a container orchestration system with it now. Okay, well, what if I can go and do, um, you know, how do I do my logging and telemetry and other things like that that are important? So in a, I guess I have a question then with regards to uh, there's so many different like service discovery tools out there and, and Cloud Foundry has its own I don't remember what it's based on, but um, so if you in these in these kind of layered cake or layered platforms, who owns that? If you decide today I'm going to use Kubernetes, today I'm going to use VMware, today I'm going to use whatever. Uh, where ultimately do you do you choose a, a service discovery tool that does everything, or do you use multiples? And how do they flow? Can you break that? Can you break that? Um, that flow or I guess the, the, the ultimate repository of, of all the services out there? Yeah, I, I think this is where standards and interoperability are key. So, you know, um, you know, going back to kind of, you know, dissertation work around REST and HTTP, you know, it's important to have these kind of standards and, you know, what is service discovery on the internet? It's DNS. Okay, well, how do I, you know, plug into DNS and, you know, things like, you know, kind of console and you see etcd and kind of Zookie Keeper, and I think, okay, how do I plug into those kind of, you know, consensus mechanisms to be able to say, okay, I have five of these things. Tell me where they are. You know, at its root, you see DNS solves the specification problem, but then how do I do that in a cloud-native, you know, environment? And that's really where things like kind of console and etcd kind of really shine. So, uh, by the way, you, I just, I just finally found it as Brent was asking you questions. You mentioned you guys were kind of talking earlier about twelve-factor apps and all these things that are required and all this kind of stuff. You also mentioned Adrian Clay Schaefer uh, when he was on the podcast a good while back. One of the things he said was, "Man, I've been thinking about this blog post I'm going to write about how twelve-factor apps require a twelve-factor infrastructure." And, you know, you guys have been, we've literally been talking about this for 40 minutes now. It's like, you know, they're, you're, you're trying to define all these things that really make a well-run 12-factor infrastructure with, with day one, day two, and beyond. Uh, you and Clay need to sit down and write this thing down, man. You've got to do it. So Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. So we'll get right on it over sushi. Yes. Um, so Clay, you own some sushi. Uh, in the meantime, you know, you, I, I'm really curious here. You know, as an operator, as somebody who does this every day, uh, you keep mentioning OpenStack. You've clearly done some massive deployments on OpenStack, and you've leveraged it. Um, and you obviously have a vast uh, majority of uh, or large deployments of Kubernetes as well. Um, and so, is you know, are you seeing a decline in your OpenStack usage as you expand on your Kubernetes usage? Do they have, are they two totally different types of, of dinner uh, or is, is one replacing the other? Or how is that? Because I see a trend. I'm curious what's in your data center. Um, I, I think we should just complementary. I think, you know, when we think about the, the world of, okay, everybody in the outside world is they're deploying Kubernetes on top of Azure, Google, and, you know, AWS. So why wouldn't they deploy it on OpenStack? Um, and so, you know, I think we've looked a lot at the kind of the Kubernetes on bare metal. But, you know, for us, you know, it doesn't answer those day two questions of, okay, what do I do if my machine fails? And it's like, well, then I'm going to get back to the point of I need something like Bosch. Well, you know, yes, well, you know, we could do kind of Bosch on, you know, bare metal, but those are kind of things that are more nascent. And we've done a lot of work with the kind of the Pivotal and the, and the uh, kind of Cloud Foundry ecosystem around getting Bosch to work really well in an OpenStack environment that we've, you know, three or four years, you know, kind of, you know, hey, you know, working in our environment. So, you know, when we think about the shifts and, you know, what do we run in the public cloud versus the private cloud, you know, if I say, okay, I'm going to go run my Kubernetes, you know, workload in AWS, well, I I have, they're not going to give me bare metal. They're going to give me some infrastructure as a service API. Um, and so why shouldn't a modern data center be any different? That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so especially, you know, as uh, we had another guest recently talk about how many clouds people are using. There's, there's You know, you're going to have to be able to support a ton of different existing APIs and different types of deployment models. So, uh, you know, we... One of the things that we keep talking about over and over and over for you specifically is your kind of your your DNA of open source. I mean, I think if I cut you in half, uh, you're you're probably actually open source. Like, you know, there's a bunch of people who put you together and you just don't even know it. Um, and so, you know, you have injected your beliefs in open source into the organizations that you live in day in and day out. Um, how how do you? How do you get people to buy in? How do you get that to scale in your organization? And what's the impact on the organization as a result? I, I think it, you know, the results speak for themselves and the fact that, okay, hey, I can go use this open source tool. I can get my job done faster and better and cheaper. And that is, you know, kind of cheaper is, okay, well, understanding the ecosystem is like, okay, you know, we have to look at it as not as a black box and be able to say, okay, let me just go take this, you know, open source, you know, tool and use it for free, you know, kind of more of the puppy model of somebody's going to take care of it. Somebody's got to, you know, do that. And so that understanding, you know, but, you know, Lisa Bloomberg, we've been very, you know, kind of cognizant of the fact of, okay, we're going to, you know, leverage these open source projects. How do we get back to the community? And it can just be us talking about it. It can be us giving code. It can be all sorts of different ways to kind of contribute to the ecosystem. So, Justin, thanks for bringing me back to to the light. Um, so I, I talked about earlier, um, you know, there's this, there's the free as in puppies, right? So there are open source, there's true Apache, you can pull it, you can use it, you can update it, you can do whatever you want to it. Uh, and then there's the enterprise model available for all those things, right? If we think of the OpenStack, the Hadoops, the, 
the chefs, right? The, all these things are are available both freely and enterprise supported. Where where do you live on that that meter of fully open source versus the enterprise supported with the support model that you're paying for? Oh, I, I think we again we look at it on a case by case basis where it makes sense for us to partner with you know folks in the community you know that happen to be commercial, but you know we'll pay them. And so again, it's that understanding of you know kind of there are developers on the other side working on it. So how do we make sure that they're getting paid to you know and getting compensated for their work? You know, in other cases where you know it's important enough for us to you know hire contributors directly, and then that's their day job. So I think we 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 look at kind of the entire spectrum. So you know we certainly do work with you know kind of you know kind of all of those you know commercial vendors. You know we probably every single vendor in the world we probably have here at Bloomberg. You know, but you know, it's also for the open source, you know, sometimes it makes sense to collaborate in a community in a, in a variety of different ways. Um, and then, you know, money exchanges hands and, you know, that's fine. And we, we understand everybody has to, you know, make a living and that's that's completely acceptable. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you guys are giving back too, right? I mean, Bloomberg has a, has a GitHub page where um, you guys have, have given up the, the use of, hey, I like I'd be interested to see how you guys are running OpenStack and or yep. Hadoop and I can pull down the exact way that you guys are doing it and run mine just the same way. So I mean I think that's pretty cool. That's a that's a big shift for a lot of organizations to have that sort of give back not only to the Apache community but just here's here's my code and this is how yep. I'm doing it as well. Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of really where, where the you know the proof is in the pudding, and it's like okay, we can go up on stage and talk about how awesome our OpenStack clusters are, but you know what we can do is say go to GitHub.com/Bloomberg, you know, and you can see our chef recipes for standing up our OpenStack clusters, our Hadoop clusters, and you know it's basically you know especially for those communities where it's like oh you can't make OpenStack highly available, and it's like. Yeah, you can. You have to think about it. You have to do some, you know, principles behind it. Here's kind of our principles behind, you know, making OpenStack, you know, resilient. Um, you know, it's been a, you know, OpenStack has been very good, you know, for us, you know, and really allowing that permissionless development and being able to say, hey, here are APIs, go and, you know, kind of call them. But, you know, we've been able to kind of publish our, our recipes. And so, again, you know, that's exactly what we're running in production, you know. So, you know, everybody can see, hey, here's how you know, we're doing it, but it's our way of giving back to the community to say, hey, look, you know, we're, we're, we're going to show up with code. And in, in as, you're, as, as Bloomberg gives back, which I think, by the way, it's like uh, you can't say thank you enough for large enterprises like that to be thoughtful enough to give things back. I know there's all, everybody always has these like thoughts and risks and all these things, and at the end of the day, they push through and do the right thing, and that's awesome. Um, are there, you know, again, you've really been a huge um, benefit to, to getting people to do those kind of things. Um, are there people inside your orgs, inside your peers, your employees, your your, you know, your counterparts who are doing this uh, open source development as part of Bloomberg Giving Back, who've then jumped into other projects that may not even be being used in your org that are starting to do really cool things? Like, is it starting to kind of, how do, how do I say it, like, essentially permeate? Like, is it just kind of running, yeah. you know, running wild, the butterfly effect of open source? Yeah, I mean, certainly. And I, mean, I think, you know, we had to, since, you know, I've been here, we, you know, revised our policies to make it 
more easy to contribute, you know, to open source and, and to get that permission, you know, of saying, yes, go and contribute, you know, if you're using some projects and we have, you know, we have a lot of really smart people and, you know, we're able to unleash them and say, hey, look, go publish this, you know, new stuff as open source and, you know, hey, here are some things that Bloomberg kind of technology kind of team, this is what we're doing, um, you know, and so that whole whole mix of things and I think, you know, it's, it goes back to that kind of belief of um, you know kind of there's a lot of great things in the open source ecosystem and we would be foolish not to try and leverage that um, but then it's also understand of let's be good kind of you know kind of members of the ecosystem let's get back you know and we were you know we sponsor you know the Apache Software Foundation the Python Software Foundation you know we're part of the you know Cloud Foundry you know foundation and it's how, how do we go and support you know these kind of ecosystems to kind of be sustainable. We don't want, you know, kind of, you know, these foundations to go away. We want them to be sustainable. We want them to be around for a long time. And so how do you do that? And so, you know, it's all of these different things that, you know, we try and do at Bloomberg. It's it's really cool stuff. And so, you know, you're you're making me think here, again, very inspiring from an open source perspective. If we, um, it's not very easy for me to do, hopefully it's easier for you. If we roll back those 16 years or so, back to when your mentor inspired you into open source, uh, I'm sure that they gave you some very key, um, you know, tips, uh, some thought processes, and frankly, a spot to start. And I know it was a simpler time. Um, but if you were saying today, hey, you, maybe you're not even all that great at code, but you really want to be involved in open source, or maybe you are good at code and you just don't contribute yet, where, how would you give somebody the stepping stones to start? You know, I, I think it would be what is something that, you know, kind of scratching your itch of, hey, I'm trying to use this tool. It doesn't quite work the way I want. Even just going to, you know, the find a projects, you know, source repository was on GitHub, open an issue. You know, most developers you talk with, you know, they want to have their product be better. They want to, you know, have that. You know, if you can go so far as contributing patches and, you know, documentation, you know, most, you know, software developers are never going to turn away help. You know, there's going to be things that they want to understand. Like, do you understand the conventions of our project or coding styles or documentation format? Um, but I, I think you see a lot of the more mature kind of project, you know, have very good, you know, documentation around that of, okay, I want to, you know, contribute to Python. And I have this new idea for a feature. There's a whole documented process around, hey, I want to add this new feature to Python. What does that entail? And, you know, that's just kind of a great you know thing so you know and it's even like you know typos and documentation you know kind of you know I, i've done that kind of a number of times where kind of the thing is like just send a pull request and it gets merged and then it's like you know you, you're like a contributor to these projects and you know kind of you know that helps and and, and and why shouldn't that be a good contribution that should be valued you know you're, you're making it better um and so once you start there then it's like oh hey you get sucked into more and more you get familiar and you know uh, and you know hopefully you know you get to meet up you know with the other contributors face to face and you know next week is apache con in miami and one of our um people at bloomberg um who's a solar contributor is going to be her first time you know going to one of these events and it's like well i'm kind of getting to meet people for the first time that you know she may have interacted with you know for years on the mailing list but you know has never had a chance to you know put a face to you know the name 
Yeah, and that's cool, by the way. And, and just so you know, Brent and I, uh, after this podcast, are going to go out to Kubo. Um, we are going to edit some documentation because we're very simple. Um, and frankly, you know, we if we can't deploy it, it's because we don't know how to read the instructions. And so we'll, you know, clean them up. And then I'm going to tell everybody that I've, communica- I've committed on a project with Justin, right? Yes. So... Uh, I love it. Uh, that's that's why I love to be able to do is say that I've worked with the likes of you know Justin Aaron Krantz and all these other great contributors to open source. That's what I do for a living, uh, dude. This has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, you did mention you've mentioned solar a couple times, and so just to close the close the door on that because it it was interesting to me. It's interesting to others. Can you can you quickly just kind of explain solar, and then I'm going to tell people go to, go watch whatever's going on in Miami and go learn more yourselves. Yeah, so Solar is just one particular Apache project um, that deals with search. And so you basically feed it a whole set of documents, and then it's like, hey, I want to find you know everything that has the word Kubo in it. And then it basically responds and says, here's all the documents that have Kubo in it. And how do you do the algorithms? How do you think about that? And you know, really what a lot of our contribution to Bloomberg are on are the scalability and the reliability of Solar and improving that for the massive amounts of documents that we have and all the news stories in the world – you know, are basically flowing into, you know, our solar search platform. And so that's, and that's built on, um, what is it, Lucene? Lucene, did I say that right, Lucene, Lucene? Yeah. Okay, cool stuff. Well, I mean, you know, frankly, we either have another podcast on that eventually, or somebody needs to go uh, look that up themselves, because I'm not going to explain it anymore. Um, So, dude, Justin, this has been phenomenal. Again, I'm geeked out. Uh, I'm going to go tell all my friends I met you. Uh, And in the meantime, for other people who want to reach out and and glean from your wisdom, uh, you're on Twitter, you're on GitHub. Uh, Can you tell people where to hit you at there? Yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter at uh, J Aaron Krantz, J E R E N K R A N T Z. Awesome. And uh, so the other thing we love to ask people about is educational, especially, dude, I got a doctor on the line. So, Dr. Aaron Krantz, what, what kind of books or blogs are you reading currently? It doesn't have to be work related that you can go, hey, I'm really enjoying this. You might too. Uh, one that I'm reading fascinating right now is uh, Lawfare, which is basically kind of uh, some politics kind of wonks about, you know, kind of the state of kind of government and, you know, what is just te- the intersection of kind of law and technology and, you know, kind of, you know, all of the cybersecurity things and, you know, all of the recent things going on. So it, it's a terrific blog. It has nothing to, you know, it's, it's not a geeky. There's no talk of containers or anything like that, but, you know, about the world that we live in and, and try and be engaged and understand, okay, you know, what just happened and kind of explain it. Love it. And so, uh, dude, this is great. You said there's, you've got peers who are presenting at an Apache conference in Miami pretty soon. What about you? Where is somebody going to be able to come see you live on the main stage, you know, ready to drop some knowledge bombs? <laughs> Coming to the main stage, Jay. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think at this point, you know, I, I, I don't have anything lined up. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there will be uh, places to, to find me and hear me hear me rant about automation and permissionless development and all those things. So, I'm sure it'll be advertised on Twitter at some point. Okay, that's great, dude. And so, uh, again, we can't thank you enough for being here. Uh, we uh, we apologize for delaying lunch. And uh, so we are going to let you go. And again, social community, everybody out there, 
hit us up. Let us know what you want. Bring great topics. Uh, we're, you know, literally Justin dropped like seven words that I'm furiously typing and I'm not even sure I spelled them right of other subjects that we could go look up and bring to you. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to let him go and enjoy the rest of his day. Uh, and on behalf of the Hot Isle, I am Brian Carpenter and with me, Brent Piatti. And Justin, thank you so much again. Thank you very much.